Thank you for joining us on the Overcoming Monday podcast with Shari King. This week, we are getting ready to serve over 1,300 students in Gatlinburg, Tennessee at Crossroads Winter Conference. You too, yes, you will also be able to join us this year on Facebook. When you search Clayton King Ministries, you will find the live stream right there on the page, starting Friday at 9 p.m. and going through Monday. This weekend, we have several CKM speakers teaching, including Clayton and Shari King, Matt Holloman, Marquise Cox, Nick Hurst, Jacob King, and Greg Wells. Thank you so much for joining us, and let's get to the podcast. On the final night of camp, my husband, Clayton King, preached a message called How to Outlive Your Life. He shared the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr who boldly lived for Christ right up to the point of his death. He also told the story of a man from India who converted to faith in Jesus and then watched his family suffer severe persecution for their faith and how God used their faithfulness to bring some of the persecutors to faith in Christ. We saw hundreds of students and adults respond to a call to ministry after this message. I know you'll love it, so let's get started. out your love in such a way that it moves our hearts when we think about it, when we sing about it, when we read about it, and then it blows my mind that we have the ability to move your heart, that it was love that motivated you to rescue us. If you didn't love us, you would have allowed us to die, and that when we worship you now, it moves your heart we honor you and glorify you and lift you up that moves your heart and that blows my mind but it also makes total sense because when my wife tells me she loves me when my children encourage me that moves my heart and me being an earthly father who is imperfect having my heart moved by my children is just a reflection of your image because you're a perfect father who loves all your children with a perfect love. So when we tell you that we love you, obviously that moves your heart. Thank you for the lyrics to this song and the truth from scripture that it reflects. I pray tonight that our obedience to your word will move your heart as well and that our hearts will be stirred to outlive our own life. Show us tonight how to outlive our own life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Give the Lord a round of applause. You can say amen or shout or give a high five or whatever you feel like doing. All right. So, hey, tonight is the last night. I'm not holding anything back tonight. Is that okay with y'all? And I want you to get excited. I want you to say amen. You can laugh. You can shout. I want to hear you. I want to feel y'all tonight while I'm preaching. Okay, there we go. Just checking. Just checking to make sure y'all are still with me. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to be in the book of Acts. You can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to start. So as you take notes, I hope you will write this down. It is the title of our message tonight, How to outlive your life. 
I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to tell you how to outlive your own life. I'm going to tell you how you can live your life in such a way that when you're dead and your soul is with God in heaven, your legacy will outlive you because it won't be a legacy about you. It'll be a legacy about Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. So when I see the word outlive, I think about one of my favorite TV shows, Survivor. Do we have any Survivor fans? I love that show. I think they've had like 40 or 41 seasons now, and their motto is outwit, outplay, outlast. And the first Survivor that ever happened, it was the very first what they would call reality TV before most of y'all were born. They take all these people and they put them on an island out in the middle of nowhere in the South Pacific, and they put them in tribes and they have to compete against each other. And I think there's like, I don't know, 20 people when it starts. And every single episode, they vote somebody off the island and that person has to go home. And the last person left wins a million dollars. And the only way they can make it to the very last episode where they are going to win the million dollars is they have to outwit, outplay, and outlast all of their opponents and everybody else in the game. And they lie and they steal and they cheat. Some people try to play the game without doing those things. Other people are just like dirty. I'm talking like the mafia. And it's one of the most amazing shows because it it really does delve into human nature. Outwit, outplay, outlast. But it's funny, there's never been a show that tells you how to outlive. How do you outlive your own life? I mean, you're a teenager, you're probably not thinking a whole lot about that right now because, you know, you hear people my age talk about eating healthy and you're like, I don't see the point because Krispy Kreme donuts are delicious. And uh, see, what you've got going for you right now is called metabolism. It's your friend now, but one day it will leave you and it will never come back. No matter how many vitamins or supplements you take or how much coffee you drink, right? Yeah, I, when, I was a, when I was a kid, this girl used to wear a t-shirt to our um, high school. I guess I was like, what, 11th grade? And uh, this girl, she was always wearing ironic t-shirts. And the t-shirt said, a, a moment on the lips, eternity on the hips. And I asked her one day what that meant, and she was like, well, what do you think it means? It was about what you eat, because if you eat bad things, you die sooner. We're, we're kind of obsessed with living longer as Americans, and we should be. Uh, every summer, I try to fast from something during camp. I try to fast, I try to give up something so that it reminds me to pray. Like the one thing I give up when I crave it, I remember to pray. This summer, I'm not drinking any soda. No diet soda, no Coke, no Dr. Pepper. I saw all that Dr. Pepper zero sugar today in the cafeteria, in the cans, in the, in the big buckets of ice. And I was like, I want all of that. But I did not. I did not. I resisted it. I rebuked it in the name of Jesus. And some of y'all did not. Some of y'all were drinking it in front of me, and I was so angry at you, but I've forgiven you. You didn't know. Point is, we make these decisions. I went to the gym today. I'm 48. I'm not as good as I once was, to quote that Bible scholar, Toby Keith. And um, 
So today, because I want to live a long life, I went to the gym today and I rode 22 miles and burned 700 calories on a bike that didn't go anywhere. I literally rode a bike 22 miles, but it did not move an inch. It just stayed in the same spot. Also, I sweat more than any human being on planet Earth. You think you sweat more than me? 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 You're all wrong. I sweat more. Okay, I don't know. I can't prove anything. You think you sweat more than me? Let's go. No, I'm just kidding. I, I don't have time for that. So I'm not talking, listen, listen. I'm not talking about diet. I'm not talking about eating more kale. I like kale. It's good for you. I'm not talking about going to a plant-based diet. Because I'm not a rabbit. I'm supposed to eat meat. I have canines that are sharp. Okay, I'm just saying. I'm not talking about giving up bad habits like smoking cigarettes or, or drinking soda. I'm talking about your eternity. I'm talking about your character. I'm talking about your commitment to Christ. All week we've talked about what it means to be reborn. And when I started working on the book Reborn, the story I'm gonna share with you tonight and the character we're gonna look at tonight was one of my primary motivations to write this book because I've been preaching this story about this guy for over 25 years. He's my favorite New Testament character. His name was Stephen. Stephen was the first... Christian martyr. And a martyr is simply someone who dies for a cause they believe in. Now, lots of people in the Bible had died. They're recorded there. Everybody in the Bible eventually died. But Stephen is the first person in the New Testament that dies because he's a Christian. He is murdered, and we're going to see the story unfold, but what I want you to notice from the very beginning, so I'm going to set this up for you, is that once Stephen dies, his physical body is dead, but his life and legacy begins the moment he breathes his last breath. Stephen outlives his own life, and you're going to see what I'm talking about here in just a moment. So how do you outlive your life? Write this down. God called Stephen because he was available and prepared. God called Stephen because he was available and because he was prepared. I'm going to leave that up there for just a moment. I want you to have time to write it down. I want you to see that this guy we're going to study tonight wasn't just some random guy that God eeny, meeny, miny, mo, picked out of a lineup. This was a young man who had some qualifications. He was a young man who was available to be used by God, and he was prepared to be used by God. Thursday night at Crossroads is traditionally a night where we see a lot of students surrender to a call to ministry in their life. Not many churches give invitations for students to surrender to ministry anymore. Not many churches, and I'm not saying this as a criticism, it's just an observation, and Lifeway and Barna have proven this. Pastors and youth pastors aren't extending invitations and preaching sermons like they did 30 years ago, and I'm not saying you don't, but overall, we're not teaching and preaching and talking about God calling people into ministry, and as a result, there is now a huge gap in our churches 
Churches can't find senior pastors. Churches can't find youth pastors. Churches can't find worship pastors. Because there aren't as many young people your age saying, I feel like God's calling me into vocational ministry. And then there aren't um, cultures built in churches to take you and, and, and train you and teach you what it means to be called to ministry. This is a story about a young man who was called to ministry by God, and we're going to see what kind of ministry he was doing, and then we're going to see the surprising way that his life ended and the kind of ministry that was birthed out of his death. So let's look at Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 8. I'm not going to read the whole story of Stephen's life, but I'm going to pick the best parts, or the highlights, I should say, for our time tonight. So here's what's happening in Jerusalem. The church is growing like crazy, and there are some women, some older women whose husbands have died, and the church was feeding these women because they didn't have jobs and they didn't have anyone to take care of them. As the church grew and more people began to get saved, there's greater need in the church. And so the apostles, their job is to preach the word, teach the word, and pray. So they had to pick from among their church other people who had abilities to do things like distribute food and like do works of service. That's where we pick up the story in uh, chapter 6, verse 3. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation. That's important. Full of the spirit and wisdom that we can appoint this duty to. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. He was full of faith and he was full of the Holy Spirit. There were some other people that they chose. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Keep that up there for a second. Notice this. When everybody was doing something that they were gifted to do, the church began to grow. When people figured out what their spiritual gift was, when the leadership in the church empowered the church to do ministry, they began to grow. People began to get saved. People began to come and join and hear the gospel. And even the Jewish priests who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah up until that point, they start trusting in Jesus. They start converting to faith in Christ. They join the church. For a Jewish priest in the first century, just days after Jesus has been raised from the dead, weeks after that, for a Jewish priest to convert to faith in Jesus was like almost blasphemous to the Jews. As a matter of fact, I'll say it, it was blasphemous. So verse 8 tells us, now Stephen full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. That's our introduction to Stephen. That's what I mean when I say that God called Stephen because Stephen was available and Stephen was prepared. 
He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom. He did great works among the people. He was full of grace. That means he was kind to people. Some of the things that we know about Stephen from the little bit we read here in Acts chapter 6, he was respected. Can I ask you all a question? Do people respect you at your school? Don't answer me out loud. Don't answer me out loud because I don't know that any of us really know fully or can really be honest. But I would much rather, can I say something to you? I'd If I were you, I would much rather people respect me for who I really am than to like me for who I pretend to be. Some of y'all, man, some of y'all, you you live in so much anxiety because you are always trying to impress a bunch of shallow people that aren't even thinking about you in the first place. You lay in bed at night wondering if the cool people at your school like you or not. Like you, they don't even know you exist. They're too into themselves to notice you. Quit trying to impress the cool people. There are no cool people in this world. Everybody will eventually die. And before that, everybody gets bad breath. Everybody gets plaque on their teeth. Everybody gets gas. Everybody got to go number two. Can I just get real with y'all? There are no cool people in this world. So quit worrying so much about whether or not you fit into this clique or that clique or if you're skinny enough or athletic enough or if you get invited to the right party. Just be a man of God. Make up your mind. Just be a woman of God. Make up your mind. Just make a decision. Who cares what they think about you? And for some of you, you know what's going to change your life at Crossroads Camp? To some of you, this will be the big thing you take home. You're finally going to quit caring what other people think about you. Care what God thinks about you. Because everybody else just isn't into you anyway. They're into themselves. You want to be different? Be into Jesus. Don't be into yourself. So Stephen was all, listen, Stephen was already doing ministry before they laid their hands on him and before they anointed him for ministry. So some of y'all have been thinking, I might be called into ministry because, listen, everybody's called into ministry. Every Christian's a minister because we're all a witness. We all live out a testimony of how the gospel has changed us. But if you read the New Testament, And there's really, in my opinion, there's no argument about this. God gives different people different gifts. A guy walked up to my table today and said, hey, where do I find out about spiritual gifts? What could I read? I'm like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Start there and then go to Romans 12 and then go to Ephesians 4. We have spiritual gifts listed off in the Bible. It's not an exhaustive list, but there are gifts. And I want to go on record and tell you, I believe every spiritual gift is still in operation today in the church, every one of them. Just because some of them have been abused and misunderstood does not let us off the hook to say, well, I just won't deal with that one. No, we're smart, we're sharp, we can read the Bible and some commentaries and we can see that you have all been, we have all been given spiritual gifts to use in the church. So every Christian is a minister, but there is a specific call on certain people that God will place on you 
based on the gifts he's given you, okay? When I was seven years old, I had no idea I was called to preach, but there were other people in my life that knew it. They saw it in me. My second grade teacher's uh, name was Miss Bonavie. It was Miss White, and then she got married, and her name was Miss Bonavie, and she gave me a nickname, the Mouth of the South. And it kind of hurt my feelings, but it kind of also made me want to, like, talk more because I'm that kid. And what she didn't know when I, was two, when I was in the second grade until the end of my second grade year is I talked all the time. I was always loud. I was the first one to answer the question. I was always trying to organize kids at recess. I was always trying to stack my team so we could demolish the other team at kickball. And then finally, at, in second grade, Miss Bonavie said, I know what your deal is. You're going to be a preacher. And she called it out of me. I had no idea that God had given me that gift. I've always been good with words. I love crowds. I love people. I love to entertain. I love to make people laugh. I love to make people listen. And then when I got saved, Jesus took all of that and refined it and is still transforming me and is still purifying me. And all of those abilities I had as a young kid, I didn't know they were connected to a calling. I didn't know they were connected to a spiritual gift. I was just doing what I knew how to do. And then when I got saved, I was like, oh, this is what I was born to do. I hope y'all can tell. I've been doing Crossroads 26 years. I was here the first night, and I'll be here until Jesus calls me home. I love camp more now than I've ever loved it. If I didn't love it, I wouldn't keep doing it. I love it. I was born to do this. I love hanging out and talking in the lobby. I like eating with y'all in the cafeteria. I like hanging out with you on campus. I love seeing kids get saved. I like watching my son preach. I like doing ministry with my wife and my best friends. This is a calling God put on my life. Some of y'all are called to be a brain surgeon. We've got a friend who was in nine-hour brain surgery yesterday, a youth pastor that, we, that some of us know. Nine-hour brain surgery. God called a man or a woman and gave them abilities to go to medical school to learn how to concentrate and know how to operate on a human brain for nine hours. And they did such a good job yesterday that Kurt Dillingham, the guy we prayed for, got up and walked and just went home to his house because God gave a brain surgeon an ability to operate on a brain. Like, you know when you say, well, it's not brain surgery? Well, it was brain surgery for Kurt. And God gave somebody a mind to know how to do that. So you know what I want to say to you is, some of you are called to be a pastor. and Some of y'all are going to be missionaries. And some of you are going to be a youth pastor. And some of you love music and you have an ability to play a guitar or drums or a bass or keyboards or a cello or a violin. Some of you have an amazing voice and God's call in your life may not be to win the voice or go on American Idol. It might be to lead worship in a church and usher people into the presence of God. And so while all of us are in ministry to some extent, there are some of you that God's going to specifically call to make a living out of ministry. Your job is going to be ministry. Your career is going to be ministry. You're going to pay the bills because you're in ministry, and you're not going to go into ministry to make money. You're going to go into ministry because it's something in you that won't shut up, that won't go away. It's a compelling, a feeling, a tug, a push. The Greek word is kaleo. It means to call out. And I heard that voice when I was 14. Stephen was already doing ministry when the people in the city of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6 identified him as a guy that needed to be anointed for ministry. He was already doing it. 
He was already filled with the Holy Spirit. He was already filled with wisdom. He was already full of grace. That means he was kind to people. He was nice to people. And I just want to call it out for some of you because my pastor did this for me. Wilk Skinner did this for me. He's with Jesus now in heaven. But Wilk Skinner used to say to me, Clayton, have you ever felt called to preach? Because I can see the gift in you. My grandmother who died when I was seven, she used to always say, you are going to be a preacher or a politician. I don't know which one. But you're going to be one of two because you've got that gift. And I'm glad God didn't call me to be a politician because I think I would have get assassinated the first day in office because I can't keep my mouth shut. I just say what I think too much. So I want to just ask some of you right now before I move on to point number two. Have you been feeling it? Now don't answer me out loud. This is between you and Jesus. Have you been stirred up at some point? Like when you go to church and your pastor's preaching, does, does that like excite you? You're sitting there and you've got your Bible and your notebook and you're taking notes and, and your pastor's preaching and you're like, I could see myself doing that. Now, it's not just like a good idea, but you feel like it might be coming from like your spirit, like the Holy Spirit inside of you who lives in you. Maybe every time a missionary comes to your church and shows a video or every time you come to Crossroads and we show clips of places we've gone overseas, maybe you love to travel, maybe you like international food, and you've always wanted to go somewhere and live in another country or, or, or you just love that kind of multicultural lifestyle and you've dreamed about it. It might not be that you just love to travel. Maybe there's a gift that God put in you and a calling that hasn't fully developed yet and God might want you to live in Guatemala next week. No, 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 uh, Saturday night. I was thinking it was next weekend, Saturday night. Two Crossroads alumni, two staff that worked for us for years um, Rachel was our female staff leader for years and years and years, and now she's a public school teacher, and so is her husband, and they've got a, a big family. I think they've got three, ki three kids, and they are going to be moving to Guatemala, and they're going to be serving with the ministry that we support in Guatemala, and there's a party for them Saturday night to send them off and, and to support them and bless them as they go to Guatemala and, like, move their family there for a season to be missionaries years and years ago before they even knew about this ministry in Guatemala, the Spirit of God began to stir in them. But you know what? They were already doing ministry. They were doing it in their public schools. They were doing it in their community. They were doing it at their church. So when Rachel and Brandon Loftus go to Guatemala, we're going to celebrate that. But can I tell you what Rachel and Brandon Loftus do every single Sunday at our church? Every single Sunday at our church, before they were ever missionaries to Guatemala, you know what they were doing? They were out in the parking lot greeting people as they pull in. On the coldest day of the year in January, 12 degrees, they're out there bundled up with a toboggan on their head, greeting people and helping park cars. On the rainiest day of the year, when it's a torrential downpour, they're out there in the parking lot with a raincoat on, waving at people and telling them where to park. On the hottest day of the year, 100 degrees in July, they're out there sweating through their clothes, waving at people and telling them where to park. That's what Stephen was doing. Stephen was serving. Stephen was doing things that nobody, he thought nobody saw. And because he was available and prepared, they anointed him for ministry. Now let me give you number two. The Holy Spirit gives you boldness in the faith of fear, in the face of fear. If you want to outlive your life, you're going to have to be bold. And the Holy Spirit can give you boldness. Because Stephen's story is about outliving his own life. 
When he met Jesus, he was reborn. The thing about being reborn in Christ is if you're born again, you never really die. You will physically die, but you will be raised again and resurrected at the last day. Stephen had boldness in the faith of fear because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 9. Acts chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Do you see that? Now, it says in verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him, who? Stephen. We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came and they seized him They took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said this man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses has handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Wow. So when Stephen begins to do ministry, when Stephen begins to proclaim the gospel, he doesn't get applause. They don't throw him a parade. They don't bake him a cake. They don't give him an award. They don't give him a card that everybody signs. They actually get angry at him and they begin to argue with him. But he was bold even in the face of fear. And guess what the people saw in him? They saw the Holy Spirit. I was telling somebody this today. When I went to the YMCA, I was leaving. There's a lady that works at the YMCA named Donna and another young lady that um, Jacob knew from previously at our church. And they were talking about Jacob preaching last night. And I want to tell you what I told them at the YMCA today. When Jacob and Joseph moved from homeschool to public school, they came to me in Shari and they said, we feel like God is calling us to go to public school to be a witness for the gospel because all the kids in our homeschool co-op are saved. And, and I'm going to tell you, I like we loved homeschool. It was hard, but if you ever want to see homeschool and what it's all about, just Google, don't do it now. I forbid you, don't do it now. Later, Google homeschool world domination. I think homeschoolers are going to run the world one day. I really do. I'm a public school kid, so I guess I'm going to work for a homeschooler one day, maybe my own children. But when Jacob and Joseph came to us and said, we feel like God is calling us to go to public school so we can be a witness, Shari and I knew that they were going to probably be persecuted. We knew that they would probably not fit in. We knew it was going to be hard, and they were going to be afraid. And what I told Donna and the other young lady at the YMCA today as I was walking out and they were behind the desk, they said, you know, how, how did an 18-year-old get that much anointing and that much wisdom, and it just kind of popped out of me. I don't know anything about pottery, but my wife does, and she explained this to me. When you make a pot or a cup out of clay, if you just make it out of clay and let it dry and you drop it, it busts. 
you just make out of clay and you pour water in it, it falls apart. You know what you have to do to a vessel to make it last? You have to glaze it and then you have to put it in an oven and you have to heat up the fire. And when you heat up the fire, it bakes that glaze and it solidifies the vessel. And when my kids went to public school, they had to learn quickly, if you're gonna live for Jesus, you're gonna have to be bold in the face of fear. And the reason why Jacob King was anointed preaching the word of God last night is because his faith has been tested. We have not sequestered him in a Christian bubble. We have not sequestered Joseph in a little Christian euphoria because there is not one in this world They know what it's like to go to school with people that smoke pot and sleep around. They have gay people and trans people and bi people in their classes. They have debates at the cafeteria lunch table about atheism and whether God is real or not. They have not been protected from the real world. They have been prepared for the real world and exposed to the brokenness of the world and they are now bold in the face of fear. You know who does that for a believer? The Holy Spirit. He makes you bold. This story is about to get really crazy. Here's the next point. Following Jesus means living like Jesus no matter what happens. We're going to skip over to chapter 7. Following Jesus means living like Jesus no matter what happens. no matter if it's popular or not, whether we have nonprofit status or we don't. Don't get me wrong. I believe in and would fight for our freedom of religion in America because if we lose it in this country, there won't be another country in the world that has it like we have it. We are the beacon on a hill, the the city on a hill like Reagan used to talk about. But, I've had to wrestle with this. What if in my lifetime our culture gets so dark that our federal government takes away our nonprofit status and tells me I can't preach the Bible? Would I still preach the Bible if I had to go get another job outside of ministry to make a living? Would I do it for free? Would I still preach the Bible and tell people to repent of their sin if I had to go to jail for it? Is Jesus really worth it? Because following Jesus means living like Jesus no matter what happens. Hey, I'm just gonna say what everybody kind of already knows intuitively. We've had it pretty easy as Christians since the beginning of this country. There is no guarantee in the Bible that we're always gonna have it easy. As a matter of fact, maybe we've had it too easy and it's made us soft. And maybe we need to understand what it means to really have a deep abiding faith in the Bible and the church and Jesus and that our allegiance is to Jesus and not a political party or a president or a prince or a prime minister. And yes, I'm getting political. I don't care if you like Biden. I don't care if you like Trump. I don't care if you like Clinton or Bush or George Washington. None of those guys died on a cross to save me from my sin. Jesus did, so I bow my knee to that man. Let's get back to Stephen. Look at chapter seven, verse 54. We're gonna fast forward now. Let me set this up for you before I read the scripture. 
the Sanhedrin gets so angry at Stephen that they literally cannot stand it. And Stephen, listen to what he does. He preaches the longest sermon in the Bible besides Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You can read the whole thing in Acts chapter 7. He stands there by himself, and a young man gives the gospel from beginning to the end and traces it all through the Old Testament to the fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus Christ, and he doesn't blink an eye. He doesn't back down. He doesn't pull punches. He just preaches the truth of the gospel of Jesus to the stiff-necked, conservative religious people. And they are so angry at him that we pick it up in verse 54 and we read this. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, three times it says he's full of the Holy Spirit, He gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices. They covered their ears and together they rushed against him. They dragged Stephen out of the city and they began to stone him. Time out. This was their form of the death penalty. This was how they killed criminals. They just simply picked up large stones and they threw them at a man until he was dead. Sometimes they would push someone over the edge of a small cliff and they would stand at the top of the cliff and throw stones on top of them and they would crush them under the weight of those stones. They drug Stephen outside the city and they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Here we have the first Christian martyr, one of the shortest ministry tenures in the Bible. How do you outlive your life when you get killed for Jesus? Well, remember what I said, following Jesus means living like Jesus no matter what. Do you guys notice as as Stephen dies what he does? The first thing it says is he looked up to heaven and he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I want to read you something from reborn. I want to make sure I say it right. Stephen's murder set off a chain reaction, kicking off a wide-scale persecution of all the believers in Jerusalem. But not once in the Bible do we ever see or read that Jesus was seen standing at the right hand of God. Every time he's seen in the Bible in heaven, he is always seated at the right hand of God. The only time in the Bible that Jesus is ever 
described as standing at the right hand of God was when Stephen was about to die. So here's basically what happened. As Stephen is dying, Jesus stands up. When the New Testament speaks of Jesus um, being positioned beside God the Father, he is always seated. Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus himself said, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds. Then Paul says in uh, Colossians 3, 1, you have been raised with Christ, so seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. How about Ephesians 1, 20 and Hebrews 8, 1? They both describe Jesus as seated at the right hand of God. This was the place of honor and authority, but his posture is the same. Jesus is always seen sitting down. This doesn't mean that Jesus is tired or that he's catching his breath. It just means that Jesus is in control. The only time Jesus is ever standing in heaven is when Stephen dies. Jesus jumped to his feet to welcome Stephen into the kingdom. The first martyr for the gospel got a standing ovation from the king of kings. He was filled with the spirit like Jesus. He proclaimed the kingdom of God like Jesus. He was hated by the religious establishment like Jesus. He was falsely accused like Jesus. He prayed for his murderers like Jesus. He committed his spirit to God like Jesus did. He died like Jesus. And then when he went to heaven, he was personally welcomed into eternity by Jesus. Being reborn means that we become more and more like Jesus and that the end result of living for Jesus is dying for Jesus. Whether you die a martyr or whether you die an old man or an old woman, just make sure that your gaze is fixed on Jesus. And the best way to ensure that you keep your eyes on Jesus is to live like Jesus. That's what Stephen did. And he got a standing ovation from Jesus when he got to heaven. So, you know, I don't know how I'm going to die. I might get hit by a bus. I might drop dead of a heart attack. I'm, my parachute might not open. I have no idea. I might get hit by, by a foul ball at a, at a, at a t-ball game. I, I have no clue. Might get attacked by rabid raccoons. I hope that doesn't happen because that just sounds awful. But no matter how you die, if you're following Jesus, if you die for Jesus, you're going to live for Jesus forever. But there is one more thing I want to point out to you from this passage of Scripture. You never know who's watching. You want to outlive your life? Remember, people are watching you live your life. And you never know who they are. You want to outlive your life? Live like Jesus and remember that you never really know who might be watching. Look at Acts chapter 8. So the very next passage of Scripture. In Acts chapter 8, we see a man whose name we have already once read. Remember what we just read in chapter 7? Saul was there. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. 
Saul is mentioned by name three times at the death of Stephen. Three times. He was watching. He wasn't just watching, y'all. Listen, this is a little known fact. Saul was responsible for killing Stephen. He's the guy who had him arrested. He's the guy who brought charges against him. And the way we know, because the people who stoned Stephen that day laid their their outer garments at the feet of Saul. That was a Jewish tradition. You may remember the story about the woman who was caught in adultery and they drug her before Jesus and the same religious leaders, probably literally the same exact men who killed Stephen, by the way, same men. They drug her before Jesus and they said, the law of Moses says that this woman has to be stoned. We caught her in the act of adultery. And Jesus said to them, whoever among you is without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus is referring to a Jewish tradition, a legal precedent that whoever charged a person with a crime punishable by death, they had to throw the first stone. This wasn't just words. This actually meant something. So whoever, just imagine this, whoever brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin and said, this man's blaspheming God, we need to kill him. And the Sanhedrin said, yes, he's guilty. Now you throw the first stone because you're the person that accused him. Saul did that. Saul cast the first stone. And then he backed off. And according to legal precedent and Jewish tradition, everybody else picked up stones to throw after they had taken off their outer garments, their coats, and laid them as a witness at the feet of Saul. Saul killed Stephen. And Saul's going to kill more Christians. He's going house to house, dragging them out in the middle of the night. He's putting them in prison. If he killed Stephen and got away with it, now he can go to Damascus and get away with it. And just a few chapters later, this same Saul is going to Damascus to arrest more Christians. And he meets Jesus. Jesus appears to him and talks to him. And Jesus confronts him. And he calls Jesus Lord. And Jesus calls him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Watch this. God called Stephen to ministry. And that ministry led him to proclaiming the gospel and then dying. While he's dying... His murderer is watching, and he hears this guy, instead of cursing his killers, he prays for God to forgive them. Wait a minute, that's exactly what Jesus did. What makes a person pray for their murderer while they're being murdered by their murderer? That gets people's attention. You want to get people's attention in your school? Quit being mean and be kind. You want to get people's attention? Quit doing dating relationships like everybody else and just avoid the drama and concentrate on Jesus and academics. You'll stand out like a sore thumb. You want, to, you want people to, to see Jesus in you? You want people to see Jesus in you? Quit making C's when you're capable of making A's and B's. Quit spending six hours on on a video game and go spend 60 minutes in the Word of God. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to tell you, people are watching you. They were watching Stephen die. And when Saul watched Stephen die, 
it put a seed in his heart that eventually blossomed into the gospel. I've seen this happen in real life. And I want to read this to you. But before I read this to you, I want to show you a picture. That was uh, 1996. And I'm in India. I think that was my second trip. We were loading Bibles onto a bus. I mean, we weren't doing anything spiritual. We're literally just loading big cardboard boxes of Bibles on an old school bus. And all of a sudden, I start weeping uncontrollably. And I don't know why. And I turn around, and this guy is has just walked onto the front of the bus with us. And I start weeping. I had no idea who he was. And our friend Sam Thomas told me who he was. And I'm going I'm to tell you his name was Ram because he was born named after a Hindu deity, a Hindu god. Let me read the story to you. I'm going to keep the picture up there while I read this to you. I want to make sure I don't miss any of the details. I met a man once who changed my life because Jesus had changed him. He is like a modern-day Stephen. Ram was named after a deity in the Hindu religion. His parents were devout, and he pursued their rituals and practices in a village in India. As an adult, he became a police officer. As he rose through the ranks in India, he became known as one who fiercely opposed Christianity, even to the point to where he physically persecuted pastors who preached the gospel. One day he arrived on the scene where he heard that an evangelist was preaching salvation and Ram was determined to shut him down. But he was urged by the audience to listen to the tall preacher from South India. He did and his heart was stirred. He decided to approach the man and when he did, he asked him how he could have peace with God. That evangelist named Thomas told him how he could be reborn. And Ram, that man right there, prayed and confessed his faith in Christ, and he was born again. Two months later, he asked Thomas, who had led him to Christ, to baptize him. He changed his name from Ram to Paul on the day of his baptism. He didn't want to be associated with a false god from another religion. He wanted to take on the name of the greatest church planner, the one that used to be called Saul, but met Jesus and was reborn and had his life and his name changed. Little did he know how much he would have to endure and how much he would have in common with Paul. Paul sensed God calling him to quit his position as a police officer and to be a preacher. So he moved his family with him to a Bible college in the north, even though his wife wasn't a Christian. But Jesus saved her through his testimony. She testified that when he became a Christian, he stopped coming home drunk after work and became more loving toward her. So she, a Hindu, converted to faith in Jesus because of how Jesus changed her husband. So after graduation, Paul and his family traveled back to the city that they had come from. He wanted to proclaim the gospel there, but a mob of people were mad at him that he had left Hinduism to become a Christian. So they did the unthinkable to this man. They made him eat the dung and urine from a cow. They forced battery acid in his mouth and attempted to disembowel him. He miraculously survived and was slowly nursed back to health. 
His family decided that they would plant a church in a large city in India to reach people from his home state who had settled there. He knew that his life was in jeopardy and he began to teach the Bible anyway. Some people saw this as a threat, so they told him to leave and he remained there preaching the gospel. So one day, a very angry man instigated a crowd to attack Paul and his family. This time, however, it wasn't Paul who received the blows. It was his daughter and his wife. He was forced to watch an angry mob of men do the unthinkable to his little girl. He watched this mob of men light both his daughter and his wife on fire. His wife and his daughter both died in front of him, burned alive because of their faith in Christ. They would not deny Jesus. Traumatized from this unspeakable thing, he spent eight months recovering in a Bible college. Little by little, he grew stronger. Despite what he had suffered, he wanted to go back to that city where his wife and daughter were martyred for their faith. He wanted to preach the gospel there and offer forgiveness to the people who had murdered his wife and his daughter. Three years later, Paul, that man, saw his prayers answered. I'm not making this up, y'all. This, is, this really happened. Would you believe that the man who instigated that mob to attack Paul's family the one who stood by and watched as they burned his wife and daughter alive came to Paul and asked him for forgiveness? Would you believe that man asked Paul how he could become a follower of Jesus, a God who could forgive a terrible broken sinner like him? Would you believe that Paul was able to lead that very man to faith in Christ and that very man became a Christian? And would you believe that today while we're here at Crossroads Summer Camp, that man that was responsible for that horrible act is not only a deacon in the church where Paul is, but he leads their deacons to minister to people in that small congregation to share the gospel outside the church. You never know who's watching. It's not a good thing that Paul lost his wife and his daughter. It's a tragedy, and it's unspeakably evil. But in the same way that Stephen was bold for Christ, and the very man that murdered him later became a preacher, Rom met Jesus and changed his name to Paul. He was faithful under persecution. His wife and his daughter lost their life. And the very man that instigated the mob to kill them is now leading people to Jesus on the same streets where he took their life. What would make a person stop and take notice of your life? What would make your classmates stop and take notice of your life? You can't be like the world.
and do everything they do and listen to all the music they listen to and date like they date and cuss like they cuss and joke like they joke and tell racist jokes or sexist jokes. You can't make fun of girls. You can't mistreat people. You can't shun people. You can't make fun of people that have physical or emotional or mental challenges. We can't live like the world and look like the world and ever expect the world to take Jesus seriously. So what I want to tell you tonight is you have the boldness of the Holy Spirit in you. Be different. Stand out. Be kind. Be generous. Put other people first. Talk about Jesus. Speak up in class. Don't let the angry mob shut you down. Even if it becomes illegal, choose now that you will follow God and not man. Choose now that Jesus is worth it. Choose now that you will pay any price. And that is how you will outlive your life. By living it for Jesus and not for yourself. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and open your hearts to the Lord. I'm just going to make this invitation real simple and real quick. Because I sense... I don't need to say a whole lot more. This is not an invitation for everybody, and I don't want anyone to feel, you know, less than or embarrassed if you don't feel called to full-time ministry. Because all of us are in ministry, but I believe that some of you have been feeling it already. You've been wrestling with it. Maybe you've thought about it. Maybe people have spoken it over you. But there's just something in you that's pulling and tugging and speaking and nudging and you just know you don't know what it is but you know that God has called you to vocational ministry well I hope today's podcast gave you some little secrets for your big breakthrough if you are inspired and encouraged by this message our speakers would love to be a part of your next event or speak at your church you can request a speaker on claytonkinglive.com forward slash speakers. That's claytonkinglive.com forward slash speakers. And finally, please let us know how this podcast has impacted you on our Overcoming Monday Instagram account. You can send me a DM or leave a comment. Thanks for listening. I hope I've given you something to overcome your Monday.